Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Mees, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, we'll be speaking to returning guest, Professor Sharice Burdenstelli. Sharice is an assistant professor and Mellon faculty fellow of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. She is a scholar of political theory, political economy, and intellectual history. She's just co-authored with Gerald Horn, the book W.E.B. Du Bois, A Life in American History, and is currently working on a single authored manuscript entitled The Radical Horizon of Black Betrayal, Anti-Radicalism, Anti-Blackness, and the U.S. Capitalist State, 1917 to 1954. Here she theorizes anti-communism as a set of policies, practices, and discourses employed by the United States government to preserve and consolidate racial capitalism in the era spanning the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 and the passage of the Communist Control Act of 1954. Her published work appears in journals including Souls, Science and Society, and Socialism and Democracy. In 2017, Dr. Bergenstelli received the National Conference of Black Political Scientists Alex Willingham Best Political Theory Paper Award. In 2018, she became a regular contributor to Black Perspectives, the award-winning blog of the African-American Intellectual History Society. Please be sure to check out the show notes of this episode and our previous episode with Professor Burdenstelli, as there are a ton of additional resources there. Also, feel free to be in touch with me about certain books as I have PDF copies I can share with you as needed. Finally, be sure to follow Left POC on social media to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to check us out on YouTube. All of our episodes are now there as well. Also, swing by our Patreon page and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc where you can get all the episodes and additional free resources as well as donate a dollar or more per month to keep our show going. And speaking of the show, let's get on with it. Here's our discussion with Professor Cherise Burton-Selly. So hi, Cherise, how's it going? Hi, it's going well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on again. You're actually one of the show's uh, fan favorites. We always get lots of feedback on your episode, which is still in heavy circulation, funny enough, um, on uh, <laughs> Black radicalism and surveillance, the surveillance state and all those sorts of things. Um, so we're really happy to have you back. And of course, this is the first time that you're on with my co-host, Richard. So Richard, how's it going with you? It's going great, and I'm really excited about today. I listened to that episode when it came out, and then also again recently, and it's uh, was very informative, and then also just quite topical then and still. So I'm I feel lucky to be here. So I'm just really looking forward to today. Awesome. Um, so Sharice, I actually wanted to get started with the discussion to talk a little bit about W. E. B. Du Bois. You have a new book out. Um, and I would love to first hear about how the book came into being. And, you know, of course, your co-author on this work is someone else we love at the show. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about the book and um, maybe starting as well, not only with the genesis of the work itself, but the genesis of a person like W.E.B. Du Bois, his background and sort of his political transformation. Yeah. OK, so let me start with 
how the book came about. That's a little bit more simple. Essentially, um, the publisher, um, ABCCLIO, was it um, has started a new um, biography series called Black History Lives, and Gerald Horn had written a biography of Du Bois with an imprint of their publisher called Greenwood Press. And so they had emailed him um, to see if he would be willing to revise the book for this new series. And so, of course, he forwards me the email and says, interested? Easy co-author credit. <laughs> so I said, OK, you know, um, I'm happy to, to um, you know, to add the, the 30,000 words of new material, which included um, what are called sidebars. So they're sort of short explanations of important events in Black and Black diasporic history. Um, I picked four primary documents and gave brief explanations of them. Um, all of them are from 1923 or before, because those are the documents uh, that are in the public domain. So it was just easier to choose those. Um, I updated the biography, or excuse me, the, the sort of biographical timeline and the bibliography. Um, and then I added a single author chapter at the end called Why uh, W.E.B. Du Bois Matter. So that's a chapter that's sort of a feature of this series, talking about why uh, the person, the subject of the biography is still relevant. Um, but then as I was going through um, Gerald's old narrative that he had prepared, I decided I wanted to um, significantly revise it so that it was more of a sort of genealogy of Du Bois's radicalism and also so that it included some of his, I wanted to emphasize, even though it's a, it was a biography, I wanted to emphasize the way in which he's part of networks and institutions and intellectual and political communities. And also um, I wanted to just add in some of the radical figures that I love, especially women, uh, like Marvell Cook, Louise Thompson Patterson. Of course, of course, Shirley Graham was already in there, but I wanted to add some more about her. So I ended up actually significantly revising the narrative as well. Um, so that is how the project came about. In terms of who W.E.B. Du Bois is, um, that is a complex question. And so, so many people have written so much about him. So it's interesting to be writing another biography about him, especially because David Levering Lewis wrote this sort of huge Pulitzer Prize winning biography of him, but ours is not sort of ecumenical in the way that uh, Lewis's is. Ours is very much focused, focusing on Du Bois's um, contributions to radicalism and radicalism as a historically situated phenomenon. So Du Bois, he is interesting to me because he went through a lot of um, ideological transformations and participated in many different um, political and intellectual trends. So in the final chapter of the book, I talk about how he um, went, you know, he participated in militant liberalism and uh, militant anti-sexism, pan-Africanism, um, Black nationalism, and Black Marxism, um, and how he contributed immensely to like Black internationalism and peace work, anti-imperial work, and a whole host of other sort of um, radical and left-wing formations. And the interesting thing about Du Bois is that <clears throat> unlike most scholars who tend to get more conservative in life, Du Bois actually got more radical, culminating in him joining the, the CPUSA in 1961, shortly before he uh, repatriated to Ghana. So he's also interesting because he participated in many of the, the prominent intellectual debates of 
um, the late 19th and early 20th century. So he was part of the ethnological debates, um, part of the debates around franchise, around the type of education that would lead to black flourishing, um, the race versus class debates, um, you know, debates about the role of women in the in the public sphere. So, and you know, um, whether a national or pan-African approach is more conducive to black liberation. So all sorts of um, issues that permeated sort of the black intellectual um, comments he was part of. And so his life is actually in many ways an embodiment of black history, but also an embodiment of what came to be known as black studies. So um, that is why I'm interested in him <laughs> to make a short story long. One of the things that you mentioned, and it's a question that I had just sort of reading some of your work was, um, I found it fascinating that he transformed in a lot of distinct ways that, as you mentioned, you know, it's still relevant today, but there are lots of things that we see that are playing out in real time as well that are reflected in his own personal political transformation. So for example, he has um, this earlier stage where he's sort of thinking about a more multiracial, um, seemingly more liberal um, sort of worldview and ways of, of fixing um, racial strife and economic strife in the United States. And then he transitions out of frustration, you note, um, to working, trying to work primarily with only Black people or trying to kind of think of a self-sustaining community model. Um, and then he later transitions to working with uh, the CPUSA and other communist Marxists and the like, uh, and trying to kind of build a coalition between white workers and black workers. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the specificities of those transformations and as well um, to kind of add for the audience, at least to fill in these blanks, like how did he get from one place to the next? And particularly, I'm, I'm fascinated with his, his kind of, I mean, to me, the NAACP at the time, at least was a very elite um, and and seemingly fairly white. I mean, like everyone passed the paper bag test pretty much that was over at the NAACP. So if you could talk a bit about like how he transitioned between those those groups and ideologies um, and maybe what was the impetus behind some of those moves. Yeah, so I think the interesting thing about the NAACP is that it is a very liberal organization, but many of those people, many of the founders, um, like Mary White Ovington, they're socialists. So then Du Bois was an early member of the Socialist Party, um, I believe from about 1909, maybe, maybe 1908 or 1909 to 1910. And then he subsequently left the Socialist Party to vote for um, Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, I believe, um, which he came to regret. So I think that early on, Du Bois was, when he... So part of what I argue about him is that um, in the first part of the 20th century, he's still ensconced in the ethnological discourse, but trying to move away from a biological, um, ethnological notion of race to a, a cultural and sociological. So what he argues in Conservation of the Races and um, adjacent writings is that race is not, the biological aspect of race is the most insignificant aspect of it, but rather the cultural and the sociological, but, but, you know, he argues that race is a cultural and sociological fact. And so I think that because he's ensconced in that ethnological milieu, um, the types of um, politics and the types of um, struggle in which he's engaged revolve around the sort of racial, uh, a, a racial uplift type of narrative. Um, he's very Victorian in his, you know, in his approach and in his demeanor. 
Um, especially, um, I would say he, he maintains aspects of that throughout his life, but, um, we argue in the book that that's more so part of his personality. He actually had, um, a shyness about him that often came off as arrogance or being sort of stuffy, but, um, it had to do with, right. Being a, a very sort of prolific and high functioning, um, black intellectual in a world in which black people are um, subjected to all sorts of forms of indignity and disrespect, irrespective of their stature. Um, and so that can really make class a moot or a secondary point. However, Du Bois is actually always looking at sort of class and structural and material conditions from, you know, as early as the Philadelphia Negro or even the souls of black folk when he's doing this sort of systematic study of um, um, sharecropping and of debt. But so I think that I think that Du Bois, the reason why he takes up so many different tools at different moments is because he is really trying to figure out what is the best way for Black people to achieve uh, equality, dignity, and um, human development in, in, in a particular historical context. So I think that he turns to Pan-Africanism. Um, so he participates in the first Pan-African Conference in 1900, but I think that he's part and parcel of the Pan-African Congress in 1919, for example, because there's a this is the internationalist moment. This is the moment of the League of Nations. It is a moment of um, early Pan um, earlier Pan-African movements, and he's really trying to think about the connections between the colonial world or coloniality, imperialism, and then. Um, anti-Black racism and racism more broadly in the United States. And so an internationalist approach um, allows him to, to cultivate a particular type of analysis. Um, he's a participant in the Harlem Renaissance throughout the 1920s. Um, in the 19, as you mentioned, in the 1930s, he turns to, oh, so in 1924, he goes to the Soviet Union. And this is when he sort of he admires greatly the Soviet Union and the great strides that they've made since 1917, though he argues at that moment that the Bolshevik style of communism is not suitable for, for Black people. He does argue that within, that there should be sort of collective ownership of, of, um, of production and of distribution, but Soviet communism as such, he doesn't think is right for Black people. But the 1930s, you're right, he becomes disillusioned with the white working class and their vehement and vitriolic racism. So he turns to a sort of cooperative Black solution. Um, this is what he's advocating at the Second Amenia Conference. Um, contra people like uh, E. Franklin Frazier and Abram Harris and Emmett Dorsey, who are arguing for a more broad-based worker um, interracial worker-based approach but Du Bois is like nah <laughs> like um he doesn't have a lot of faith um in the white working class and I think that some of that comes out in black reconstruction um but as there are some small gains beginning to be made um under Roosevelt he begins again to turn back to the possibility of a broader um um a broad-based struggle against um, racism and imperialism. So I would say um, 
it was Shirley Graham Du Bois, many argue, who really um, helped to radicalize Du Bois. And so he's, he has like a 25, 2025-year affair with her. He's married when they first meet and when they get involved, but ultimately he ends up marrying her in 1951. Um, but she was always in those radical circles, those CP uh, and leftist circles. And so she really um, pushed him toward a more... Uh, Marxist or class-based analysis, though he's he's studying Marxism in the 1930s, and it's actually Abram Harris who sends him a lot of Marxist materials, and he teaches a uh, Marxism in the Negro course at Atlanta University in the 1930s. Um, so, so <clears throat> part of what I, I try to convey in this book is that Du Bois is surrounded by different groups of intellectuals and activists, and really in the 1930s, 1940s, and certainly later, he's more and more surrounded by radicals, whether it's in the Council on African Affairs, Shirley Graham Du Bois, um, James Ford, who is a member of the CPUSA, Doxy Wilkerson, who's a member of the CPUSA. He's more and more involved, Paul Robeson, right? So he's more and more involved with these sorts of people. And so he begin, he starts to become more and more sort of firmly rooted in a, a um, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist framework. Um, of course, it's messy. One might argue he's anti-imperialist as early as 1915 with the African roots of war. But then, of course, you've got closed ranks. So there's a lot going on. But I would think that Du Bois is a lot, um, a lot of his sort of ideological development is influenced by the types of people and the um, he's surrounded by and the types of organizations in which he participates. One of the things that I've noticed uh, just in kind of researching before today was that uh, Du Bois definitely led uh, what I would consider an unconventional life, both uh, generally and then uh, contextually with uh, people of uh, of the time. And so I'm kind of curious whether you feel that that played any particular role in his evolution, uh, like as early as his childhood upbringing. And then as far as the Pan-African part, uh, I've, I've been exposed through Twitter that uh, about kind of a general... Uh, lack of awareness of a variety of terms that get used uh, as uh, simple as uh, black and indigenous people of color. And so if you could just both give a little bit of kind of a, a general description of Pan-Africanism and then also uh, that the role Pan-Africanism played in his evolution particularly. Yeah, so in terms of unconventional life, I think... Um... I don't really know what a conventional black life is, right? Because black mm -hmm. people are very, very, very hetero, uh, heterogeneous. But I would say in terms of um, growing up in the North, you know, growing up in a single parent family, being an extremely bright and well-educated, and then having it, he really had his first racial awakening going to the South in Fisk. Um, it's not to say that he didn't have racialized experiences um, in Massachusetts, where he grew up, of course he did. He talks about, you know, the white girl snubbing his note or whatever. But in terms of actually experiencing abject Jim Crow, that wasn't until later. And he also mentions in both Souls of Black Folk and Dusk of Dawn that that's when he sort of committed to being, you know, a Negro as such and dedicating his life to the up uplift of his people. And so I think that in, in the sense that he, uh, you know, because up until about the 1960s, the overwhelming majority of Black people did live in the South. And so and the fact that he came from, um, you know, uh, Massachusetts, I think is 
unconventional in that sense, in terms of his geospatial location. He's also extremely exceptional in terms of the fact that he went to Harvard and was educated in Germany, as many of the top scholars were at that time. Um, and so I think that what one might say is unconventional or unique about Du Bois is his very sort of itinerant and routed life. He his tra The fact that he's so widely traveled uh, allows him to have, I think, a broad and um, internationalist type of view, but he always also maintains a very localized form of analysis. So for example, when he's trying to um, form these land grant, these uh, kind of land grant studies, so these 100 year study with the land grant HBCUs, essentially what he's advocating for is very localized um, longitudinal studies of black life. And so he, he has that rare balance between um, the local local manifestations um, of uh, material and ideolo um, ideological realities, as well as a sort of broader international focus. And then that sort of leads to Pan-Africanism. I would say there are probably several definitions of Pan-Africanism, but essentially Pan-Africanism has to do with the linked faith of African descendant, Africans and African descendants wherever they're located. So this idea that if the continent is flourishing, so too will people in the African diaspora in that, and the, the better off people in the African diaspora are, so African descendants in the diaspora are, um, the more uh, they can advocate for and help to uh, alleviate the structures um, of domination that, um, that plague um, the continent and that are constantly imposed upon the continent. So it's this idea that of, um, a mutuality, a mutuality of struggle, a mutuality of broad historical um, histories of, of of domination and repression, but also of um, ways of being in the world. Um, there's a you know obviously a cultural wing where people argue that there's a sort of composite African personality or African ontology. One might argue or metaphysics that is different from a European metaphysics. Um, I don't know about that, although Du Bois does talk about spirits, right? Um, spirit and soul, that there's a particular racial um, spirit or soul that each racial group contributes. And so um, I think that he does believe culturally and in terms of disposition in particular ways that there's something that African people offer to the world. Um, in term, in practical terms, uh, his Pan-Africanism manifested in obviously the Pan-African Congresses, in um, his participation in the Council on African Affairs in the nineteen, um, the late nineteen forties and early nineteen fifties, and his deep attunement to the issues of sort of development and um, imperialism and colonialism on the continent and also in the Caribbean. He is a sort of um, representative of the U.S. government in Liberia in 19, I want to say in, sometime in the 1920s. Um, he's a vociferous critic of the U.S. regime in Haiti starting in 1915. And so he always has a uh, um, analysis of an attunement and attunement to what is happening in in. Um, the global Black world. And this profoundly influences his idea of what liberation and freedom um, entails. And so there's not really a time 
when Du Bois is not doesn't have this sort of broad um, international focus and analysis, which also accounts for, for example, his support of the Japanese um, early on, right? So of course, this is this is a ubiquitous phenomenon. So when when the Japanese whooped on the Russians in 1905, this was represented like the colored world pushing back against white supremacy. You know, it's the same with the Battle of Ottawa in uh, what is it, 1895 or 1896 when the Ethiopians beat the Italians. So all of these um, become symbolic for a, a failure of white supremacy or it reveals a lot of white supremacy. And so Du Bois is very attuned to the linkages between um, the racialized world and the ways in which <clears throat> they're subjected to white supremacy and capitalist exploitation and how different forms of coming together of African people and of racialized people more broadly is essential to um, challenging those forms of subjection. I just wanted to ask really quickly, considering all of his travels um, and the people that he interacted with, and also partic in particular his visit to the Soviet Union, did he ever interact with Harry Haywood? Um, and in particular, if not physically, like if they never were physically in the same room talking to one another, uh, did did Du Bois weigh in on Haywood's idea of the black belt thesis at all? Um, and for those of you who may not be familiar with it, there is a, I can provide a link in the show notes for our discussion of, of um, Harry Haywood, who we featured as the left POC of the week, um, where I give more information about this idea that he forwarded um, within the, the Comintern, I believe. Um, so if you could talk a bit about that, and then also perhaps some of the people that he did interact with on these travels and even perhaps had conflict with, because it's something that you bring up quite a bit in your own writing about um, some of the other famous and canonical Black figures that many of us look to from the early 1900s um, and say, you know, call them heroes, but in fact had some very, um, I don't know, like tortured and and, and contentious um, interactions with Du Bois. Yeah, so in terms of Harry Haywood, you know, I'm not exactly certain if they ever met, but I will say that there are affinities between Du Bois' idea of a Negro nation within a nation and the Black Belt thesis. Um, I think that by the time Du Bois joined the Communist Party, Harry Haywood had already been expelled um, for uh, bourgeois nationalism, right? And this is in part because Harry Haywood never moved away from the Black Belt thesis. He never moved away from the, the Negro question. He, that was always, um, he always thought that that was a correct line with respect to uh, Black self-determination. And so he was eventually expelled from the Communist Party. Um, but there's certainly affinities, especially um, especially in Du Bois' writings from the, uh, the 1930s, um, when he's talking about a Negro nation and the nation, does the Negro need separate schools, this sort of thing. He's certainly arguing that the, the condition or the, the, the degradation that Black people experience is not just discrimination, that it is, it's akin to a national question, like it's both exploitation and oppression. Um, and so in that regard, he, his analysis very much um, dovetails with um, Harry Haywood. I think that they would disagree in that Du Bois, he argued for a separate Black economy within the context of the United States, in the context of the United States, whereas um, part of the Black Belt thesis is that the, the Black nation, like the Black Belt, could succeed if they wanted to. But 
that was not the sep separation is an option, but it's not a necessary requirement for Black self-determination. And even within the Black Belt thesis, what they're arguing for is that the struggle for equal rights is the condition of possibility for um, the Black Belt to realize self-determination. And so this line is developing from about 1928 through the 1940s. Um, and I was finding, uh, so William Patterson had something as late as 1954 about um, about Black self-determination. But the thing about the Black Belt, the, all of these things are historically and contextually situated. The sort of material conditions have to be right for a particular articulation of self-determination, if you will. So um, again, to make a short story long, I think that there were definitely affinities between at different points in Du Bois's history with um, Harry Haywood's analysis. Um, in terms of black intellectual rat beef, yeah, so it's it permeates and it's one of my favorite things to find in the archive. But one that I think is particularly hilarious is um, when Hubert Harrison, who's considered the sort of the dean of black radicalism in Harlem, drags the boys in um, after his closed ranks um, editorial where he's telling, you know, black people to forget their specific grievances and, you know, combined shoulder to shoulder with their white brothers to, you know, to beat the Germans or whatever. Um, and Harry Hay, or excuse me, Hubert Harrison has an article called The Descent of Dr. Du Bois, where he's essentially like, no, like this is the, <laughs> this is exactly the time to raise up um, our grievances and to, um, you know, we can't move away from the particular struggle for um, black rights and against black terrorism, et cetera. And so, and um, Hubert Harrison wasn't the only one. There was many, many people who came out against that particular editorial. Um, du Bois and Kelly Miller, Kelly Miller, who was the dean of um, of Howard University, um, was critical of Du Bois as he moved more and more towards uh, socialism um, and communism, and said that you know Du Bois was basically an old kook, and you know as he was aging, he was um, moving away from the you know his more relevant analysis, which was liberal analysis. And then, you know, Du Bois retorts when he's writing um, a tribute to Kelly Miller after he passed away, you know, he said he was dishonest basically and would attack anything. And he had no sort of, he, he his politics changed with the wind, this sort of thing. So um, let's see, who else? Um, gosh, there was probably more. I mean, there's, of course, there's all of the discussion Hughes. about. Oh, yeah. So like, oh, so the thing about Langston Hughes was was more. Oh, so there's one with. So, OK, so him and Claude McKay had a tiff because of the way because Du Bois did not like Claude McKay's book, Home to Harlem. Um, he was very critical of it in the crisis, but then wanted Claude McKay to submit other poems. And Claude McKay was like, well, why do you want my poems? If my book is if my writing is so seedy and exposing the underbelly, like, why are you? Why do you want me to contribute to this or whatever? So he was, you know, so Du Bois was being sort of approved essentially and Claude McKay took exception. With respect to Langston Hughes, this had more to do with Shirley Graham Du Bois. So essentially Langston Hughes was very, very left up until a particular moment. And that is when um, um, McCarthy, not even McCarthyism, but basically anti-communism really set in as a mode of governance in the United States. And so, um, Langston Hughes is writing these books about great Americans, and after after a time, both Robeson and Du Bois stop stop appearing in these books, and so 
after Du Bois passed away and Freedom Ways magazine is doing a special issue, um, a special tribute to Du Bois and they want to include Langston Hughes, Shirley Graham Du Bois is like, no, are you kidding? Like he became a red baiter. Like he 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 capitulated to um, to Cold War pressure. So why would we want to hear from Langston Hughes? So it was more Shirley Graham Du Bois being critical of Langston Hughes than um, Du Bois and Langston Hughes having a direct um, confrontation. Though it, it may it very well may have been right. Um, yeah, let me think. I might think of more and randomly insert them later. So, <laughs> but those are the, the main ones that that come um, to the top of my head. Um, I, in that general vein, I had a curiosity just about kind of uh, how international travel and exposure to communities and figures uh, abroad uh, influenced the both international perspective and then just generally his political development throughout his life. And quickly, I just wanted to mention one of the things that really stuck out to me in all of this and has already stuck out to me thus far is just kind of how wide and how particularly, uh, I don't know, uh, notable his lifespan was, uh, the things that were happening in the in the country and globally, and then just how how much it encompassed. Uh, I I think the last slave that was imported uh, died in, I, I want to say 1935. And so uh, some of the stuff you're talking about in the early 1900s would put him, would put that in that time frame. So that's just one of the things that stuck out I wanted to mention as well. Yeah, what's interesting about, you know, Du Bois, he lived almost 100 years. And it's, you know, it is when he's in his like 70s, 80s and 90s that he is, doing a lot of this very, very radical work, and which is why people easily discount it. They assume he's senile, that he's under the, you know, people are manipulating him. He's under the influence of others. But um, as, you know, to your question about both space and time, I think when one lives that long and sees so the sort of protracted nature of, of you know, racialized violence and capitalist exploitation, um, and you are committed to eradicating it, there are many, many, there are, you know, you take on a lot of different approaches to try to challenge them. And so I think that Du Bois's travels, he would see, um, you know, different economic conditions. He would be able to talk to people who are experiencing different ways, uh, different relations with the state. So workers, he would talk to, you know, Black intellectuals and elites, whether they were in France or England or, um, in Asia, in Ger- you know, in Germany. So, so one thing when he's in Germany, um, part of what he's witnessing in real time is um, so. This is one a trip that he takes to Eastern Europe and Germany and the Soviet Union. I think this is all part of one trip in the nineteen, the late nineteen twenties. He's seeing anti-Semitism in real time, and he argues at that moment that the anti-Semitism he witnesses in Germany at that time is even worse then um, anti-Blackness in the U.S., that's how bad it was, right? And so his tra- he's witnessing um, the ascent of Nazism in real time, and he is having real fears about this, right? Um, when he was in Germany in the 1890s, part of what influenced him towards socialism was that at that moment, socialism in Germany is the strongest um, socialist formation in the world. And so he is going to meetings. He is just, he's, uh, he's um, 
witnessing around him sort of these socialist activities. And so it's not that he's just writing or theorizing about these things. He's actually um, he's actually witnessing them. So when he goes to the Soviet Union, he's seeing um, a country that was a, an agrarian country in basically 10 or 15 or 20 years time become an industrial powerhouse. Um, when he goes to China, um, especially his, his later uh, travels to China, and he's seeing um, all of the possibility and development that's coming out of these socialist revolutions, I think it has a powerful influence on, um, on his understanding of economic organization. Now, granted, he overlooks a lot of the um, atrocities, so to speak, that are happening in the Soviet Union and that are even happening in China. Um, and he, you know, and he, there's many people who are critical of this. So somebody like Bill Mullen has a, a particular critique of his, of Du Bois's um, Stalinism or, or of his sort of veneration of the Soviet Union. Um, but nonetheless, even his travels to Africa. So when he goes to Liberia, he's very, <clears throat> you know, he's very struck by um, the poverty there. But he also says that when he steps on that soil, he feels, you know, home. He feels a particular connection and affinity. Um, of course, he ends his life um, in Ghana, um, of course, at the invitation of Kwame Nkrumah. But and he's also sort of very um, taken by the the post-colonial Ghanaian state. But the other thing, too, is that especially later on in his life when he's traveling, he's getting a hero's welcome. And so there's a there's a very stark distinction in the 1950s, for example, between him having his passport taken away, him being indicted by the U.S. government, you know, in his home nation, and then traveling around the world and being treated like a dignitary. And so there's a way in which traveling to these other spaces allows him a different, um, a different sociality and um, a different sort of way to experience the world that I think um, also influences his, his growing sort of disdain for or increasing lack of faith in the possibility of not only the U.S. government, but sort of um, <laughs> of the U.S., sort of the structure of the U.S. in general to to um, to improve. I'm curious about this latter part of his life where he is having, I mean, he has strife with the United States government for a large portion of his life, but the sort of latter half um, during McCarthyism and the like, um, can you talk a bit about that phase in his life, as well as some of the tensions and later his break from, for example, the NAACP? Um, and also within that, can you explain or go and, I guess, expound upon this idea of parallelism that you bring up that is is ubiquitous in trials um, against people who are, who are you know, on trial during McCarthy's, the McCarthyist period as communists? Because there's a bit um, in some of your work where you talk about that and how it didn't necessarily apply if I'm not mistaken, to some of the organizations that he was in when they were on trial. So again, if you could talk about that phase, all of the, the sort of legal battles that he had with the states, as well as um, some of the battles that he had with the organizations that he had actually helped found. Okay, so in terms of, so the boys depart from the NAACP twice. Um, in the 1930s, it has to do with um, Walter, he has a, a tiff with Walter White about basically the NAACP was um, critical of his pushing of this, sep this 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 
nationalist line because they, um, you know, are an integrationist organization. But essentially, Du Bois was very critical of NAACP in general because he said they had never articulated a clear line about um, integration or about um, um, what it is, how it is that um, race relations should be uh, be resolved. And so the more he wrote articles like, you know, does the Negro need separate schools, the more critical um, the board became and the more they wanted to clamp down on crisis, which had been a relatively, his role as editor of crisis had been relatively um, independent from the organization as such. But number one, with the setting in of the Great Depression, and number two, with his more sort of militant kind of nationalist oriented line, um, they wanted, the organization wanted to, or I would say the board wanted to exert more control over Du Bois. And ultimately those um, those differences were not resolved. And so he left for the first time and that's when he went to Atlanta University. In 1946, 1946, I believe, the next time he was expelled from the NAACP had to do with his support of um, Henry Wallace and the um, the uh, the Progressive Party. Um, ostensibly, that's why he was let go because theoretically the NAACP is nonpartisan. However, as Du Bois pointed out, the NAACP had been adamant and very sort of um, clear in their support of Truman, and so. Basically, he argued that essentially he was being um, he was being red baited, right? He was being punished for his radical politics, not because he was being political as such. And um, the fact that he was supporting the Progressive Party candidate was something that the NAACP um, did not accept, and was something that they found to be um, aberrant from what their their national policy was. And so he was fired. Of course, not without pushback, there was a whole committee um, that was formed to contest his um, expulsion from the NAACP, but he ended up going and working for the Council on African Affairs um, and other being involved in other various left-wing organizations. And so essentially, um, so what I argue is that there's sort of a long derail of McCarthyism. McCarthyism proper is like 1951 and 1954, but it really starts in 1947. Anti-communism as a sort of mode of governance starts in 1947. When uh, Truman passes these loyalty oath guidelines, this is when the attorney general starts to collect lists of subversive organizations. And this is when, you know, there's a, you know, there's a sharp break or a consolidation of the break between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, who mere years before were collaborating to defeat the Nazis, right? So as communist organizations, communist individuals, and so-called communist front organizations began to be systematically targeted, these are the organizations in which Du Bois is increasingly involved after his expulsion from the NAACP. So these include the Council on African Affairs. These include the Peace Information Center, um, other peace groups in which he's involved. Um, and so his indictment in 1951 was because of his peace activism um, and because he's the chairman of the Peace Information Center, which is ostensibly, according to the government, a, a communist front for the Soviet Union. Because, of course, those who are advocating peace in a radical and internationalist way were considered to be um, pushing the Soviet line because apparently peace is anathema to the, to the American way of life. It is a, a, so, a form of Soviet intrigue. 
Um, and so as Du Bois um, becomes asso- first associated with people like James Ford, Doxy Wilkerson, um, Paul Robeson, Eslanda Robeson, um, William Patterson, Louise Thompson Patterson, um, the Jackson. So all these sorts of people, he becomes guilty by association. So this leads to parallelism. Parallelism is um, this idea. So this, you know, in the Smith Act trials, which started in 1948, there's this this um, approach called parallelism, where you establish the evils of communism, and then anything that is parallel to it, that is to say, that shares any of the values or any of the principles of communism, themselves become communism or become just as guilty as communism because they are either directly or indirectly pushing the communist line. So for example, if the communists support peace and there are peace organizations, these organizations are parallel to communism or to, to you know the CPUSA or to the Communist International and therefore they too are um, evil or subversive. The Communist Party pushes for civil rights and so any sort of militant push for civil rights or for black equality becomes systematically red baited because of course interracialism and of course equality between whites and blacks is a communist ploy therefore organizations that are parallel to that communist line become themselves suspect which is part of the reason why organizations like the NAACP and even the National Council of Negro Women they when they're pushing for rights they do it in a very nationalist cold war liberal framework that as much as possible that they try to use to protect them from being red baited by the government. But um, as so Pettis Perry, who's a member of the Communist Party, a black, a black communist who was actually indicted um, with, with Claudia Jones, he writes an open letter to the NAACP where he's like, hey, even as y'all are pushing this anti-communist line, you're still being red baited. You're still being <laughs> surveilled by the government. And the more that you push this anti-communist line, the more you align with the very white supremacists that you're supposed to be challenging. So this whole Cold War apparatus creates a real problem for not just communists, but for people who are pushing for any sort of structural change or any socioeconomic advancement that is challenging to white supremacy and to capital. And so in the book that I'm writing now, that is my argument that that anti-communism is a mode of governance that's actually meant to protect racial capitalism. Yes, it is about geopolitical strategy. Yes, it's a sort of a political formation, but ultimately it's a way in which the U.S. government is trying to consolidate racial, racial all aspects of racial capitalism, um, but using the communists, right? Communism as a specter of sort of destabilization and danger. So. This is part of um, Du Bois' reality. Oh, the, the last thing that I'll add is the reason why he leaves the U.S. in 1961 is because the United States government upholds the McCarran Act. And the McCarran Act is one of the most, or excuse me, the McCarran Law is like one of the most nefarious um, anti-communist laws. This is the law under which Claudia Jones is deporta- uh, deported, for example. And this is a law that essentially um, makes it illegal to be in the Communist Party. It is a... Um, it is a law that legalizes concentration camps during national emergencies for radicals. It is, it's called the Eternal Security Act of 1960. So it is a law that 
makes it um, much more easy to criminalize people for association. It undermines freedom of association, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. And so once the the the, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds this in 1961, uh, the boy leaves, right? Because he knows that he has been already been um, a target of this legislation and other other for other adjacent forms of legislation. So, and he's 80. <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. Du Bois is like in his 80s and 90s at this time. And he's he's ostensibly supposed to be a danger to national security. It's it's wild. One of the things that kind of uh, sticks out to me in general is, you know, with uh, Du Bois, especially as having a long life uh, and evolving views uh, and just personally interacting in revolutionary spaces or academic spaces or whatever, uh, that sometimes uh, a particular person uh, in this case will focus on Du Bois uh, a a view is taken kind of out of context or without uh, consideration for th where that view ended up or where the person ended up uh, are there some things about Du Bois that you've noticed uh, just in your research and, and interacting with people and kind of discussing that has uh, stuck out to you as a way that people kind of decontextualize or take perhaps uh misinterpret something that's said that it's kind of popularly circulated have you come across anything like that yeah you know i think of the talented 10th as one of these sorts of things because people think that the talented 10th was like this bourgeois negroism which is short it, it was sort of right it, it, it reproduces this idea that black people need leaders but i but the part that people often leave out is that for Du Bois, the talented 10th had a fundamental responsibility to the race. And so when he gives a speech before the Boule, and I want to say 19, sometime in the 1940s, where he talk, he begins to talk about the, the guiding 100th, where he moves away, or the, the guiding 100th, where he moves away from the talented 10th is not, is because he discovered, no, he, he essentially was arguing that, you know, the Niggerati had abdicated their responsibility to the people to the masses that that the talented tenth wasn't about amassing wealth and resources and prestige um for its own sake it was about using it, it was about the best and the brightest and the most well-trained people of the race using all of the tools at their disposal to to contribute to black flourishing to the best of their ability so it was as much, it was not a, it was not a status of privilege per se, it was a status of responsibility. And so I think that the way that the talented tenth is discussed um, can miss that point, right? It's basic, it's basically a form of like vanguardism, right? Which, you know, people are, you know, are critical of as well. But I think that it wasn't that Du Bois was saying that, you know, the elite is the best just objectively. I think that what he was saying is that, any group, any race, any group of people has 10% of its population that um, has the capacity to be highly skilled and highly trained. And therefore, those are the people who have the most at their disposal to um, help everybody, to to lift up the whole race, right? Um, so yeah, so I think that that's one of the most sort of misconstrued or, or misrepresented um debates, not least because it's often couched in like the industrial education versus liberal arts education dichotomy that we know that we should have learned by now is actually not 
it was not as hard and fast and it was not as sort of dichotomous or as um, these positions were not as separate or were not as sort of contradictory as we learn, you know, in our textbooks. So, um, yeah. You just mentioned textbooks, and one of the things that uh, both you and Du Bois have helped me with is uh, I started reading or listening on audiobook to Black Reconstruction, and immediately uh, before I got probably 100 pages through, I was ready to hear more from like the Hampton crew and putting the pig against the wall and demanding what was ours just because I was so not exposed to just that part of history. And so, uh, <laughs> the the scholarship that you're doing, I think is incredibly valuable and I hope and look forward to wide distribution of it. Thank you. Appreciate that. So my last question about Du Bois actually is a nice segue from that comment because um, I want you to explain to the listeners, why does Du Bois matter? Now, I know you just wrote a chapter on this, uh, so I feel like you're pretty equipped to to answer it, but in your best estimation, right, and especially for these times, why does someone like Du Bois and his life's work matter? Well, I think that Du Bois matters because the things to which he was dedicated, including peace, um, including uh, socialism, including the eradication of white supremacy and racial hierarchy, our um, internationalism, right? Um, anti-imperialism, all of these things are deeply relevant today. Um, and, you know, as the, not only Du Bois, but as the the body of work of Gerald Horn teaches us is that Black people have often made the most progress when we have looked internationally and when we have had international allies. And so, you know, um, Gerald Horn goes as early as the American Revolution, you know, through to, um, you know, Black power, you know, the Black power moment that we, you know, we need to expand our cartography of struggle and that part of the, you know, the one of the sort of byproducts of the Cold War is the turning inward, is understanding, first of all, it's the sort of eth the ethnic, <laughs> the ethnicization of politics whereby, you know, each small group gets its small share. And that's, you know, that amounts to the struggle, but also the turning inward, the, the renationalization of, issues of of race and economic dispossession where you know we we gotta we gotta look bigger we gotta look broader especially as um you know u.s empire reaches its asymptote all of that militarism all of that sort of might that has been um stretched across the globe is going to turn back inward and as we know it is racialized people and black people particularly who are going to bear the brunt of that and so it would behoove us to have a broad international network who can um advocate on our behalf so you know of course it was the boys in i want to say 1948 who um created the appeal to the world which was the the first uh the fir one of the first positions presented to the united nations um, arguing for a remedy to Black plight. So he internationalized this sort of um, struggle of Black people. And then, of course, we've got We Charge Genocide, which was um, an even bigger, more internationalized um, way to bring the plight of, of Black people in the United States to sort of to ensconce that in a broad framework of genocide, um, a broad framework of sort of uh, anti-imperialism, um, and anti-colonialism. 
And this is, you know, internationalism is the approach of the Communist Party in general. Um, it's and it is part of why they are um, condemned and they are targeted as foreign inspired and as um, subversive is because of that very internationalism. But nonetheless, it is the Communist Party that helps to internationalize, for example, the Scottsboro case. They made this case of Southern Black boys in Alabama an international issue, and there was international outcry. And so I think that for what Du Bois shows us, shows us, not only Du Bois, but also the organizations in which he was involved in the individuals in which he built intellectual and political community, what they show us is that we have to, we cannot be parochial, right? Because these are capitalist exploitation and um, warmongering and imperialism and neocolonialism and um, racism and anti-Blackness. These are global phenomena. And even as we attend to the particularities of our locality, like I think that we, it would behoove us to sort of think broader, right? To understand the connections between what's happening in Venezuela what's happening in Bolivia, what's happening in Iran, what's happening in, you know, the UK, um, all of these things, you know, what's happening in Syria, Palestine, of course, all of these things are interconnected in that, um, you know, and it's not just sort of like tweeting solidarity that there are, you know, that anyway, tweeting is fine. I'm not condemning the social media activism, whatever. Um, I just I think that there that that Du Bois brings into sharp relief the the necessity of the international as well as um, the types of things against which we need to be struggling. Police brutality is important, but it is a function of larger phenomena, and I think that we don't necessarily have the knowledge or the critique currently to to have these broader understandings of exploitation and, and oppression and domination. So um, so I think that that's why Du Bois is, is as relevant today as he was, um, you know, in 1960 or 1950 or... On that note too, you mentioned internationalism quite a bit there. And I know that that's something that has been a sort of recent preoccupation of yours. Um, you recently gave a conference talk about this issue actually and about sort of the the changes in the use of the term and what that might mean for um, the future of like not only the academic treatment of the idea of Black internationalism in particular, but also the way activism is framed around that. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your understandings and and sort of lamentations about where the terminology has gone in recent years. Um, and also if you could explain a bit of the differences, although it's subtle, um, between the idea of Black radicalism versus the radical Black tradition. <laughs> that sounds like a setup. Um, yeah, okay. So in terms of Black internationalism, well, the way that it's been used, I would say recently, is just as any form of Black of the circulation of black bodies and ideas. So it can be tourism, it could be cosmopolitanism. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be linked to any sort of politics. And I think that that is wrong. Um, moreover, I think that the term internationalism connotes or is has a, a history of being linked, either 
directly linked with or adjacent to or in solidarity with <clears throat> left like left wing international formations like the communist like uh you know the communist international or the second international and so i think you know so so minka makalani his book um in the cause of freedom i think really um historicizes internationalism um, in this way. And so now there are scholars like Hakeem Adi who argue in his, he argues in his latest book on Pan-Africanism that um, Black internationalism is not really a, a historical um, <clears throat> phenomenon. It's something that American scholars came up with um, to not use a term Pan-Africanism. <laughs> and so, you know, while he talks about like the, um, what is it, Jane Nardal, she coins the term um, inter internationalism internationalism noir, you know, the it's French. I am not even going to try. But anyway, he says that she coined that term, but that essentially no Black actors really describe themselves as Black internationalism or as Black internationalists. But I would say that as a conceptual framework, it describes a particular, it describes the left wing, the left wing um, subset of Pan-Africanism, because of course, Pan-Africanism doesn't have to be radical, right? I think that Pan-Africanism, it expands, it um, expands ideology. So one can go like Marcus Garvey can be a Pan-Africanist and then you can have like Alpheus Hunton, completely different ideologically, but, all, but both are Pan-Africanist. Um, whereas Black internationalism would be um, a subset of the radical subset of Pan-Africanism. Likewise, I think Black internationalism is the Black or African descendant enunciation of third world internationalism or tricontinentalism or third worldism. So it's also part of a broader um, anti-colonial, anti-imperial, and sort of um, color-based formation. Um, so somebody like um, Anne Garland Mahler writes about this in her book from the Tricontinental to the Global South. And then I think that, um, so, so it's a, it's a, it is political. It has, it's, it's objectively political. It's, it's linked. It, it has to do with linking struggles across, um, space. Um, and it has to do with, it is necessarily anti-capitalist, I would say. And so I think that, much like anything, like, you know, currently settler colonialism is a big concept that many people are taking up. Diaspora at one point was, and maybe still is, globalization. I think that these things become um, what Edward Said would call traveling theories, where they come to mean any number of things. And what that can do is, it often when, when that happens, the more radical aspects get pushed out, right? Because you know, as one might say, the only thing the U.S. hates more than Black people is radicals. And so there's an endemic um, anti-Marxism or anti-radicalism or what I would call um, epistemological McCarthyism that tends to take hold. And so when some, when things become, when these concepts become popularized, it's the left-wing aspects that become abstracted out. And so that's sort of my main gripe with it. I think that I distinguish between like Cedric Robinson's Black radical tradition, and then I use something called the tradition of radical Blackness, because for Cedric Robinson, part of what he's arguing is that the, that sort of racialism spans from the feudal to the sort of capitalist order. And thus, it is the sort of structuring antagonism or the structuring logic um, in that 
you know, contra the Marxist sense that there is a, a there's a rupture between feudalism and capitalism and capitalism represents a new sort of socio-political order and formation. So um, Robinson is arguing that because of the realities of racialism that begin in Europe and then that just become globalized and that take on a particular and, and a, a particularly pernicious form for non-Europeans that nonetheless racialism is sort of <laughs> racialism permeates you know the um it it as opposed to capitalist exploitation is the sort of the structuring antagonism is how it describe it um and thus what is unique about black radicalism for robinson is the sort of the racial cultural challenges the ways in which black people move beyond or had their own endogenous um, forms of struggle that are not linked to Marxism or that are not linked or that that are not linked to Marxist conceptions of class struggle, um, not least because class formation in the European sense or especially in the British sense is not sort of universal, cannot be universalized to the Black experience. Um, and so he has this chapter about this sort of, it's a sort of metaphysical, sort of cultural um, essence or practices that give black radicalism its unique character. Um, so my, and that's fine, right? That's one sort of approach. I, I use tradition of radical blackness because I'm specifically talking about a particular um, radical formation in which um, political economy and structural and material um, critique analysis and struggle are at the center and where both interracial cl class antagonism and also critiques of super exploitation, that is to say the forms of exploitation that racialized people suffer are at the center of struggles for liberation. And so these are not people who, these are people who, for whom Marxism is um, essential, but they use Marxism in ways that are fitted to historical, racial and material contexts, which is something I think that Marx would support, right? Um, but they're not, disavowing Marxism. They're not claiming Marxism is Eurocentric. Like they are using the tools of Marx and Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky or whomever, um, but articulating them to, let us say, the Negro question or questions of colonialism or questions of um, imperialism. And so, and they also understand capitalism as not only a unique mode of production, but also a sort of unique political and socio-historical formation um, and that modern racialization is a product of capitalist exploitation. So it's just a, it's a different, um, analytical framework, but it is related to, or it, um, it departs from, or takes off from, I would say, Cedric Robinson, because, I mean, he does have, you know, he writes the most popular, the, or the, um, yeah, he writes the sort of most popular work on Black Marxism. In the first recording that you get that y'all did about a year ago, uh, you mentioned some of the figures that you had been looking into or discovered along your journey and in your research. Uh, some of the ones that uh, stuck out to me uh, was Elma, <clears throat> excuse me, Elma Francois and the Negro Welfare Cultural and Social uh, Association, mm -hmm. and then you also mentioned uh, Charlotte. 
best. And I was just wondering if you could uh, talk, if you had had time to uh, discover more there or what, what had gone on there. Yeah, so Elma Francois, there's a tiny, I've not done more research on her. There's a tiny book that, um, gosh, the woman's name is eluding me. And it's, uh, I met her in, um, when I was did my research at UE St. Augustine. What is her name? Anyway, I forgot her name, but she she has a sort of definitive work on Elma Francois. I've not done more work, but I do intend to circle back for my my chapter that I'm writing on the 1930s. With respect to Carlotta Bass, yes. So um, she actually... Um, went through she's got like a a biography or an autobiography but it's written through the pages of the California Eagle for which she was the editor for for a number of years and so um I'm drawing on quite a lot of her work about um the Smith Act McCarthyism um the McCarran Act and so she's amazing so she was one of the co-founders of Sojourners for Truth and Justice she was one of the um she was a vice presidential candidate for the Progressive Party, I believe. Um, she was very attuned to the, the Smith Act trial that was happening in um, the California-based Smith Act trial. And um, she's just basically, you know, she's like one of these badasses like, um, you know, Shirley Graham Du Bois or um, Claudia Jones, obviously, or as Londa Robeson. So she's just, um, you know, deeply anti-capitalist and she's she's struggling around a lot of the same issues that Du Bois is, Du Bois and all of this, uh, this other sort of radical cadre. She, you know, she traveled to the Soviet Union and talked about how there's a complete absence of racial antagonism in the Soviet Union and um, that because of that, they're able to really focus on things like peace and development and industrialization because that's where the human energy is going. Um, and, you know, her newspaper is, is extremely popular and extremely well circulated, but of course gets, re- you know, is systematically red baited. She is called before HUAC at least one time, probably more. So she's, um, I'm learning a bit more about her. Um, Dale Gore writes about her in um, Radicalism at the Crossroads. And she, I think she's also mentioned in some of the chapters in um, Want to Start a Revolution. So um, I'm still only probably know enough to be ignorant, but she's certainly somebody that I'm engaging with in that I um, I include her writings in the California Eagle um, in some of my work. So, yeah. And some of my new fascinations have to, I was just at the CPUSA papers and I was, I spent some, a lot of time in James Ford's papers. So, um, um, you know, he's one of my people now. Of course, Claude Lightfoot, who I wrote about and um, I wrote about in a recent article, but spent some time reading his, um, reading about not only his, uh, his case, but also some of his, um, his critiques of, of um, capitalism and of uh, racism. And then I read some more stuff by William Patterson. And William Patterson is just amazing. He, because he's trained as a lawyer, I think, uh, he, he has this, his writing is amazing. And he's real, he's very, very thoughtful. And so I'm going to draw heavily on him for, to theorize racial capitalism. Because I think, you know, my argument is that when these per- when these black communists are talking about like super exploitation, they're talking about imperialism and, um, you know, the national character of black oppression. This is just what, you know, I think that that's racial capitalism. They don't call it that. But essentially what we now know as racial capitalism, I think, um, you know, drawing on the- this group of thinkers makes that sort of interrogation much more robust. 
um, because something that's missing in, missing in current iter, current understanding of racial capitalism is war. That all of these people are anti-war. Why? Right. And I think that that's something that's really, really important and really, really crucial to understanding how uh, capitalism generally and racial capitalism particularly um, operate. Um, so my last question is actually connected in some ways, um, because one of the things that you say a lot in both private and public is I am not an activist. I'm an academic. Right. You've been <laughs> you're on the record. You're on the record in the old podcast episode. You said it at the conference. You said it to me personally. You saying it uh, in many ways in your own way throughout this interview. Um, I am curious especially now that you've done this extensive work on W.E.B. Du Bois, someone who was both activist and academic, I would argue. Um, have you given that idea a little bit more thought? And have you perhaps considered the ways that your academic work is your mode of activism um, and kind of where you see possibilities for bridging those gaps, not just for yourself, um, but for people who are interested in, in you know, doing both activism and um, some sort of activism academic or community outreach through ac academic work? Yeah. So, I mean, I just want, so one of my, my newest, but greatest academic, um, academic, my academic comrade friends is Layla Brown Vincent. She actually does, a, she's a great academic, but also does community work. My girl, Sandy Placido, she um, is at Queens College, but also do does work in, I think it's the Center for Dominican Studies or the Dominican Studies Center, something like this, where she is also, she's not only doing like her own research and scholarship, but she's also doing scholarship that leads toward thinking about like policy. Um, you know, so there's many, many, many people <laughs> who are better than me at it. Like, you know, they're actually um, rooted in um, community work and do things um they're involved in any number of things beyond the academy and so when i say again when i say that i'm not an academic or i'm not an activist it's not because it's because like i don't well um i do think that to a certain degree your scholarship can be a form of activism and i would say that i'm trying to make an intervention in the academy to train people better <laughs> and to train people to be more um, socially and socialist minded. But I don't want, but I stay in my lane. Like I don't want to, you know, um, I don't want to call it activism um, to take up, to be in that lane, right? So like if there's an activist conference and people are looking for a keynote speaker, they should not invite me, you know? I would actually decline that and give them a, a, a number of other names of people who are actually doing that work. I think that we need to have some intellectual humility and responsibility as academics and not take up so much space when that's not our bag, you know? And so I feel like to me, it's more so, um, I don't have a lot of solutions. I'm still trying to understand the problem as I, I you know, I'm, I'm always saying. Um, and so I just want to honor that you know, that work that people who are activists or who are actual activist scholars, um, I want to honor that space for them and not sort of encroach on that because I, I know that that's not um, what my central focus is. I'm still, I'm still trying to find my thing. I will, you know, one day, you know, I'll be you know, arrested and thrown in jail. <laughs> <laughs> when I find my thing, 
don't worry. I just haven't, you know, I haven't, I don't know what my thing is yet. Um, and so I'm, I study in the meantime, but I do think it's very, very important. And I will say that I'm, th- I'm getting, I'm thinking much more about um, adjunct faculty and the exploitation, the hyper, you know, super exploitation of adjuncts and, you know, thinking about what work around that might look like and just trying to do small things, you know? So when I, so, um, you know, when I'm inviting, I'm inviting a, an adjunct professor who's one of my good friends to come and speak at Carleton and pushing for, um, you know, a thousands of dollars for them to come and do that. Whereas I would do it for $250 or whatever. I want them to get much more because their economic situation is much different than mine. Right. And so just thinking about, you know, those day to day forms of um, just trying to be conscious of what's happening and do my best, you know, to embody the politics that I study and that I care about and the people, you know, the politics of the people who um, I am inspired by. So I just try to live my life ethically and sort of with a particular political orientation. But I'm trying to, you know. I'm trying to find my thing, but it's also like I'm I'm in awe and just in extreme admiration of people like Paul Rhodes and Du Bois who found the time to even Gerald Horn who find the time to do all this stuff because I'm like, you know, like I just feel I don't know how I, all of my time goes to sort of trying to balance the job which is teaching and the work which is my scholarship, you know, and it feels like there's so there's not enough time for anything else, but. Time is elastic and time is, I think, magical in that way that you can make time when you find something that you want to make time for. So, but anyway, I'm thinking about it. Well, as always, we appreciate those thoughts. Um, And thank you so much for coming back to speak with us. Um, You know, like I said, your your first episode that we did together is a fan favorite. Like literally people are still sharing that, talking about it. Um, It's one of the highest, listened to and rated uh, episodes. So again, we love to have you. You're always welcome back. And um, hopefully everyone who's listening to this can get a chance to either read your new work on Du Bois and or, you know, follow your um, your writing as well. I know you're not as active on social media, um, but I highly suggest everyone check out uh, Professor Burdenstelli's writings. They're amazing. Uh, so again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me both. Richard, it was great to speak with you. Welcome to Left Pocket. You're awesome. And I am, I'm a fan (laughs) of the show. Uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and all all the work you're doing. All right. Thanks, folks. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Please don't forget to check out our Patreon page and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc to get more information on the project itself, all the podcast episodes and additional resources for free. And you can donate a dollar or more per month toward the project itself to keep us going. Finally, be sure to be in touch with us on social media by searching for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. We interact regularly with our listeners and fans and people who follow us um, in our many areas of social media and online. Uh, So definitely swing by, drop us a line, ask us questions, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, again. Have a good one. Thank you.